What up, people? Hey, we are getting really close to the end of our Scandalous God series, which is awesome after three long years. But uh, we're also getting near the end of this whole journey toward a building after longer than three years, all right? And so with that, we try to do regular updates. Uh, we're in that phase now where a lot of the staff is moving their stuff out of the building. We're nearing the end of all of the technicalities part. Uh, and also part of what that is is also nearing the end of our of our. Uh, working with a lender to make this whole project kind of come underway. And so they're doing appraisals or doing all this other stuff, looking at our financials. Again, they're going to go back and look at our books. And so all that's kind of underway. And that's kind of led a little bit to kind of a conversation today I wanted to have with you as far as kind of giving to the project and what that looks like and everything else. Now, if you're not aware of what we're trying to do, we are seeking to build this facility right here down on 203 where the bank currently is. And you'll notice Trent's car is already parked out front in the shot, so works out really good. And, and this is a toolbox. This is kind of, uh, early on we talked about this space being a sanctuary, and if you go back to the Old Testament period, the temple, the sanctuary, that space, it wasn't just for God's people, but it was meant to be something for the nations, a place of prayer, of healing, of help, and of hope for the nations. And so for us in this little sort of way, it is a facility to do things for the good of our city, to bless our community in the name of Jesus. And so that's what the heart of this whole thing is really all about. It's not about us just having a space, but it's, it's really a toolbox to facilitate uh, gospel and care and, and really tending to the needs of our community. So we have some inside photos right here. This is some of the stuff our interior designer is putting together, giving us a sense of palette and color, and she's still working on a lot of things there. But it's a really exciting prospect. This is something that, going back 10 years ago, we thought could not happen, would not happen, and now we're on the eve of making that happen and seeing God bring that about. So it's very exciting. Now with that, financial update for this last month. And so we have some numbers right here. Sorry, I skipped that other slide. That's on me, not on you. You're awesome. I'm messing this up. So anyway, so uh, this last month, our total gift giving was 77,000, which was actually up from the previous couple of months, but it's down from our target, which is we're targeting at about 90,000 a month that we're really seeking to hit. That's what our lender is kind of looking at as well. And so when we're in this last stage, they're looking at our books, they're looking at these numbers and they're like, hey, that's going to come back up, right? And we're like, we certainly hope it does. So uh, with that, that's why I'm just wanting to share this with you. Maybe a couple of things to think about. First off, if you've been already giving to Redemption Church, thank you. Fantastic. I just want to say uh, sincerely, authentically, thank you for your giving and your generosity. That's awesome. Uh, maybe you haven't been either at all or as consistently as you'd like. This would be a great season to be thinking about that and maybe pulling the trigger on that particular option in your world. That would be really, really cool. Maybe for some of you that are watching online where you consider us your church, uh, but you're not able to attend physically because you live in other places, if you see us as your church, maybe this is a time for you to consider giving. That would be really cool as well. Or even just a one-time gift, whatever it is. Like they're just, There's just these factors that are in play right now that we want to really make sure that as we've been incredibly generous throughout this whole time that we're doing the same right now as we near the goalpost. And if all goes according to plan, hopefully here in June, maybe July, but realistically June, start to see some dirt move around, some fences to go up, some things to take place. And uh, again, Jesus is going to get the credit for all of it. So lots going on, kind of an ask that I wanted to make of you today. Uh, but again, in that knowing that God has paved this tremendous way, this did not even seem feasible two years ago. Uh, and uh, two years ago, we had about 500,000 in the bank. And now, as you see here, we have 3.6 million. God's doing things, which is great. So even in the ask, I also trust in his hand of provision. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and 
get us ready for today. I'm going to create a space for us to just take a moment to reflect, to pray to ourselves, and then we're going to dive right into the Gospel of Luke. That's where we're at, the Scandalous God series. Also want to remind you that we have an app, and there's notes that you can follow along with as well today. If you want to do that, that's awesome. Uh, But let's go ahead and create some space right now, settle our hearts, and then see what Jesus has in store for us. Jesus, as we look to this first day of your passion, right? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. As we look at Thursday again, I pray that we will learn the lessons of that Thursday. I pray that we will see how we are tempted to be in the space of the disciples on that Thursday. And I pray that we would learn from that so that we can be the people of Sunday in resurrection strength and resurrection power with a resurrection focus that makes much of you, even if it costs us everything, because you are worth it. You matter that much. And so I ask that you open us up today. You would make us pliable and teachable and open and and that you would expose some of our own issues and biases and control elements so that we can trust you, be more like you, and certainly love the world around us in the same way that you loved us. And so guide us today in your word and open our minds and our hearts to apply it. We seek you on this day in your good name. Amen. So we are in Luke chapter 22, and today will feel a bit like a biblio-bent version of the Princess Bride, all right? So it's a little bit like you have heroes, and you have villains, you have betrayal, you have courage, you have sword fights, a kiss, and true love, all in this space. But it's not as whimsical as Peter Falk when he's explaining that to his grandson sitting on the bed. In fact, if anything, today may also feel a bit like the end of Braveheart, right? where there's tragedy and pain and suffering in the midst of it all. And so to kind of regather our thoughts a little bit since it's been a couple of weeks, um, it's the last Thursday of Jesus' life. Jesus has met with his core disciples for the Last Supper, and it's amazing because it was originally the Passover meal, but that Passover meal becomes the final one in all of human history. He closes it as a Passover, and he reintegrates it as communion as this new covenant, not old covenant. And so it's this beautiful, thoughtful, caring, loving setting that he has with them. And they break the bread and they drink the cup. And no sooner do they realize the the beauty of this scene that Jesus then jars them with an announcement. And he says, listen, I know this is great, but one of you, one of my 12, is going to betray me this very night. And so he drops a bomb right there in the middle of the room. And yet no sooner does he drop the bomb that we're reminded of how the disciples are still a bit dense. They don't fully realize the ramifications. And so they go full tilt dummy dumb at this point, right? That's what my wife loves to say about people that do dumb stuff. She goes, they're dummy dumbs. These guys are full dummy dumbs right here. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed. One of you is going to do it. They start thinking to themselves, it can't be me because I'm awesome. Says they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. That is dummy dumb action if I've ever seen it. One of you is going to fail. Won't be me. I'm too cool to do that. 
And then they're arguing in that very space where it's been so sober and caring and loving. It's just bizarre. I mean, imagine if this happened like this next season for the Seahawks, game one, when we're playing Russell Wilson, right? And so we're going up against our old guy. The game's underway. We take the field. We huddle up. And then the guys, the Seahawks, start arguing about which one is now the best now that Russ is gone, right? DK's like, it's me, man. It's me. Speed and size. And then you got like Tyler going, no, man, it's my hands. It's my hands, bro. It's my hands. And the Rashad's like, no, it's my speed. It's my feet. You got to just run the ball. Run the ball. Like if they started arguing in the huddle, you'd be like, this team's stupid. And in the same way, this team here, it's a little stupid. So Jesus drops a bomb. They don't understand the scope of what's going on. And so Jesus is going to have to bring them down to earth. And so he's going to square them up both as a group and he's going to address their ringleader, Peter, in the midst of that to square him up as well, right? And so he's going to start with the first thing in your notes if you're in our app and you're wanting to keep along with us this morning. He's going to teach a lesson. And we saw this lesson a little bit last time when we were together, but it's this idea of moving up means stooping down. See, this is a kingdom value. This is this thing that Jesus really cares about, right? And so in verse 25, after this whole thing happens, who's the coolest, who's the best, who's most rad? He says, in this world, the kings and great men, they lord it over the people, and yet they're called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant, he says, who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who serves? He says, of course it's the one who sits at the table. They're the guest of honor. But not here, for I am among you as the one who serves. See, this is meant to be an enduring lesson. As much as the meal meant something, the lesson that is taught after the meal, it means something too. And it's important to us today because, listen, we're all accustomed to what it takes to become great in this world right? To become great in this world, you have to show your strength, your might, your fortitude. It's upward mobility, right? It's proving your worth and your value. It's this idea of, of having greater authority, right? That's what we kind of look toward this in this life. It's growing notoriety, but kingdom-mindedness in Jesus's way is upside down and backwards. We've said that often throughout the series. Jesus is like, whatever's familiar to you, do the opposite, because that's my kingdom. And that's exactly what he's saying here. So you think your greatness is when you're bigger, you're badder, and you're better, but actually your greatness is when you're giving and serving, and you're forgoing your own stuff for the sake of someone else. And so he just nails that to the table on the spot. But then he promises that he also rewards this. He says in verse 28, you've stayed with me, in my time of trial. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's a lot we could get into there, but here's what I love about this. Remember what he's just said. The kings of this world lord over people, and they're kind of loved for it still. But you're gonna be different. 
And if you want to really become a king in my kingdom, if you want to rule on a throne in my kingdom, you do the opposite of the kings of the world. You serve everybody. You become the least of the least, the lowest of the low, and I will esteem you as the greatest. The road to royalty in the system of Jesus is rooted in service. So we don't want to underplay this. Right? This is constantly the thing he drives. He's the serving, suffering God to rescue the world by giving himself away for the good of those who don't want the good of God. Right? That's what the cross is. It's amazing. And so Jesus is saying, you guys get to do the same thing. And if you do it, I'm going to reward you. It's upward mobility by stooping down. That's the beauty of this kingdom-minded thing. And so he or she who serves the most receives the best. And listen, you don't have to wait to die to enjoy the reward of service, right? That's what he promises. But here's what we also know. Think about in your own life or people that you know that say, you know, when I serve, it's just rewarding, right? It just feels good. I feel good. The people I'm serving, they feel good. Service has reward built into the equation, and that's why we should want to serve. I mean, even in a couple of weeks, we're having Duval Days as a community, and as a church, we have an opportunity to serve our community by working with Thrive Fitness. And, and, and this is, again, we need a lot of people to sign up for that. That's a way we can serve our community. And listen, if you sign up for that and you do it, you're going to feel awesome that you did it. You're going to be like, man, I love my town. And they know I love them. So that's just one little way in which when we serve, it feels great. And the fact that this serving now is rewarded later is even better. So it's all kind of tied together. And so he just drives from this idea that service is where it's at, right? Service is what I elevate. Now at this point, I don't think the fellas quite get it. So they're still sitting there going, I'm rad. In fact, I know I'm rad because he just told me that when I die, I'm going to be a king. That's how rad I am. Like Jesus just validated my own ego, right? So he needs to deflate their swollen heads. And so he's going to bring some news. And he's going to bring it, first of all, to our man, Peter, right? Impetuous Peter, the blockhead so often in the story. He's the ringleader, right? So if we look at all the disciples and we're like, they're kind of dipsticks sometimes. Peter's like, like the king of the dipsticks sometimes. Like he really can be dense at times and not get where Jesus is going. But Jesus is going to begin to highlight something with Peter that's the next lesson in our story today which is growing up requires falling down, right? Growing up spiritually, growing up emotionally, growing up in a biblical way, sometimes you have to fall to really grow. And so while they're all kicking around, who's awesome? Jesus comes to his friend and he says, Simon, Simon, my guy, Peter, Satan is asked to sift each of you like wheat. Notice that, not just Peter, only Luke says all of them are going to get sifted. He says, but I've pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail so that when you have repented and turned to me again, go and strengthen your brothers. I love the tone here, right? I'm always thinking in terms of tone, and here's what I love. Jesus is not rolling in and saying, Simon, dude, Simon, look at me, bro. You say dumb stuff, you do dumb stuff, and you're going to do it again. You're going to step in it big this time. You're talking tough. You're acting like there's no problems, and you're the guy or whatever else. But we know Satan's going to roll in. He's going to punk you. He's going to punk them. You're all going to blow it. I'm just letting you know in advance. You stink. 
thanks for not sticking up for me. Like, he could do that because Jesus knows how Peter's going to roll. He knows how this is going to fall apart. But that's not the tone. The tone is Simon. Simon. Like, that double usage is intimate. It's personal. He's like, I want you to know, man, Satan's going to test you. He's going to test this whole team. And I know what that's like. I faced him for 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness. It is hard. It is rugged. It is painful. So I've been praying for you because I know what this is going to mean for your life. You're going to get banged up in the process. You're going to actually slip and fall, and you're going to feel shame and guilt, and that will tempt you to walk away from your faith because you failed. I get it. I know. But listen, don't give up. Don't give in. After you've fallen down, and you've realized what's happened, screw your head back on straight and, and, and rally these guys again and get them going. Don't get trapped in your failure. That's easy to do. He says, I want you to kind of redeploy, repent, and reorient yourself toward what I've called you to do. I'm not going to look at you as a failure, so you don't look at yourself as a failure. I'm praying for you on this one, right? Well, again, Peter is not quite in the headspace that Jesus is in, and so he has a retort. Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you and even to die with you. No, he's not. No, he's not. Part of the problem for Peter here is that he assumes Jesus to be a certain kind of Messiah, right? And we've been talking about this all the way through Luke. He thinks Jesus is a warring, conquering Messiah, and they're going to go into glorious battle, and if they're fighting in battle side by side, and they die by sword together, so be it. That's honorable. If they fight and they're imprisoned, so be it. That is honorable. So Peter has in his mind one kind of thing, but the way Jesus is going to go is very different than Peter. And so Jesus knows that that, that Peter's going to just like ding-dong ditch Jesus in a heartbeat. And all these guys are going to do it. So Jesus brings more clarity. He says, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me, that I'm even your friend, that we've even been chilling together, and you've been learning from me. You're going to deny all of that. Now, next time we were together in Luke, we'll see those three times and why three is so indicting. But for now, what Jesus wants Peter to know is that something dark is hunting him and something dark is hunting the other guys as well. And they need to be on notice. It's from this that Jesus turns to the group and he begins to set them up for a profound lesson. Everything teaches. And Jesus is going to use this next scene to teach one of the more profound lessons about what kingdom responsibility and kingdom advancement and gospel proclamation looks like. And it has to do with the third thing in your notes. Lasting lessons are learned the hard way. Every time, right? We're no good at learning from memos. We have to suffer a little. We have to fail a lot. We have to learn the lesson in pain sometimes to really get it. And so Jesus is going to set up the lesson. Verse 35. It says, then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out to preach the good news, he says, you didn't have any money or a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals. Did you need anything? And their answer is no. Right? Now, here's what's cool about this. Uh, this happened a long time ago in the Gospel of Luke, way back when we were in chapter 10. Right? And it was the scene where he rallies them. 
And he says, all right, you guys, we're going to do this. And here's how we're going to do it. I want you to go with nothing, no bag, no sandals, no staff, no stuff. I'm sending you out with zero. And to boot, I'm going to send you out as sheep amidst wolves. That is not a pep talk, right? You're going to go out against predators, and I'm sending you out as the prey. This is why no school mascot is the sheep, right? Because, right, no, nobody feels threatened by a sheep, and especially a sheep going out amidst wolves. To consciously tell them that is your station up against that station is spooky stuff. He says, but how did it go? Remember how it went when you had nothing but dependence, and you went with a humble spirit as opposed to predatory strength. How did it go? Well, they came back and they told Jesus, oh man, we went out and preached and people were convinced and we talked to demons and devils and they flee. And Jesus goes, right, when you guys were doing all that stuff in this upside down backwards way, he says, I literally saw Satan fall from heaven. The idea there is that Satan was dethroned of his power because these guys went out in the most upside down backwards offensive ever. Right? So Jesus wants to lock in. Remember when you did it last time? Remember how you did it? Remember how it went? They're like, yeah, it was awesome. Jesus is like, okay, lock that in. All right, because you got to remember that's how it was done. You were outrun, outgunned, outmanned, outmatched in every way, and yet you were resilient. You saw effects. You did it when the odds were totally against you. It worked, right? But here's why I believe he's saying this. It's that he knows that they will be tempted to lose sight of that strategy as time goes on. And they will want to use more earth, earthly tools and earthly means to get earthly goals achieved. And the reason I suspect this is true is when I look at 2,000 years of history when it comes to Christianity, when Christianity is at the margins and it has nothing, it's like this powerful movement that is undeniable. But when it gets strength and money and resource and a system, so often it corrupts it, right? And pretty soon it's more about the system and it's more about the power than it is about the Jesus it represents. That's always been the flaw of religion throughout 2,000 years of Christianity. We all know that, right? None of us have to look far to see the risk of that. And the risk was even there for the apostles, certainly, so Jesus needs to get this object lesson set for them to deal with what will be tempting for them. And he's going to do it in a weird way. He's actually going to tell them to do something, but I think there's another motive in telling them this. Verse 36. It says, remember how you did it with nothing as sheep? Now, take your money bag and a traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. So this is very different than the last sending. You go, well, why? Well, verse 37. For the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. He was counted among the rebels. Yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. This is strange at a number of levels. One is he tells them to do this thing. Why? So he can be counted among a group of rebels. That should cause your little spidey sense to be like, oh, do, 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 do. Right, I sense something here is up. Now, there's two ways we can overall look at this little section from 36 to, to 37 here, right? One is simply to go, hey, this is just a new loadout for a new mission, right? So previously, it was light, and it was fast, and it was sheepish. But now, have a bug-out bag, a, wa a bag, a wad of cash, and, and a weapon. 
right? We're going different now. We're rolling different this time. In other words, you hope for the best, but you're ready for the worst. You're going to face danger by looking dangerous. Like, is that what Jesus is beginning to tell the guys to do here? It could be. It could be that it's just a radically different kind of disposal here that he's running. But there's a second option. And that is that he's actually suiting them up for what suits their earthly sensibilities and their expectations about who he is as a Messiah, right? Only to then show them the futility of this particular approach. See, I I, I lean toward that second one, and I'll explain in a minute why I lean toward that. But, But again, I think what he's been doing throughout is he's trying to help them understand that this kingdom that he's launching is not is not the kingdom they're expecting. The Messiah that he is is not the Messiah that they're wanting. Again, they want a conqueror, a warrior, who thrashes their enemies and raises them up in their greatness. But that's not what Jesus is going to do. Now, the irony is that when he is arrested and the charges that are brought against him, he's basically charged with insurrection. He's a threat to Rome. This is why Rome finally goes along with executing Jesus, because they're like, oh, he's a king? Well, that threatens the crown. Oh, he, he's, he's causing trouble that could risk Roman occupation and, and dominion? Well, that's a problem. So he's technically executed as a terrorist in the eyes of Rome, as, as somebody that's threatening their system. So, so there is some of this here where, where what he's getting them to do is going to fulfill this this prophecy about how he is labeled. And when it starts, what you'll find is it starts with violence. And the violence is done by whom? One of his own, right, with a sword. So when Jesus is arrested, the first drawer of blood is one of his own guys. So keep this in mind when it comes to the lesson. For now, what we have in the lesson is Jesus says, all right, bug out bag, wad of cash, get a weapon. Sell the shirt off your back, in fact, to get a sword. And so what happens? Verse 38. They say, look, Lord, we have two swords among us. And he says, that's enough. That's enough. Now I look at this and I go, okay, let me get this straight. Uh, One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, plus Jesus, thirteen, two swords. This is cute, right? Can you imagine when they show up with the two swords and they pass them out? Like the other guys are standing there like Samwise Gamgee with their rope. <laughs> Can I have one of those shiny daggers, please? You know, like, like are they going to share custody of the two swords? Right? Like Peter gets it Monday, Andrew Tuesday, John Wednesday, John, you know, like two's enough for all these guys? Well, maybe the lesson is not about them being outfitted with swords, but rather the swords are going to serve a lesson. A lesson that once served, the swords sort of go away. Therefore, they are enough. And I want you to keep that in your mind, that that little phrase, that's enough. And also, just a little friendly additive here, in the original language, that's enough has like a terseness behind it. The the way it's worded is like, it's like, that's enough, right? So there's more maybe in play here, and we'll see in a minute. So, they get swords, And then in verse 39, accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them to pray so that they would not give in to temptation. This is a great message for us because what he's saying just in general even is you're way better off to be praying as preventative medicine than to be praying once you're in the thick of 
the battle. It's better to pray before you enter into temptation than to pray once you fall into temptation and you're asking for forgiveness and for God to pick you back up, right? Like that, it's just better. Now, here's the great thing. God always forgives. He loves the prayers of forgiveness. But you know what's really, really awesome? When you pray, when you feel the potential pressure coming, you pray in advance so you're ready for the pressure. That's what he wants them to do because he knows what's coming. He's already told them. Satan's gonna sift you all. All of you are gonna be challenged this very night. You wanna take some time to pray but Jesus prays also verse 41 says he walked away about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray the only reason I figure it's a stone's throw is because he actually threw them at the guys for sleeping or something like okay I know how far it was about a stone's throw because these guys are sawing logs over there I don't know that for sure but I know what he prayed for sure verse 42 father if you were willing please take this cup of suffering away from me can I tell you, I, I've always deeply appreciated this prayer because it starts with a, with a desire. And the desire is really simple. Jesus knows exactly what he's facing. And so he says, God, if there's some other system, some other plan, you've got a backdoor to this whole thing where you could do it in such a way that I don't suffer for their sin, I don't suffer at the hands of our creation in their cruelty. God, if there's another way, do it another way. I'm asking you to deliver me from this hour. That is his prayer of desire. But then immediately it turns to a prayer of surrender. And they're bolted together. He says, please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. See, I, I totally get this, right? I, all the time, have prayers that are wishes that I wish God would do. But then in that, there's this underlying, but God, I want your will more than I want my wish if my wish is outside of your will. That's what Jesus is caught up in right here, right? And what we know from the story is that God does not answer Jesus' prayer in the way Jesus wants. So in other words, when you get frustrated and angry, like, God, why don't you say yes to my wish? Jesus says, yeah, I feel you. But it's because God has a greater will. And that will is gonna serve a far superior purpose. And so Jesus basically is gonna receive a no from God, but in this, God will give Jesus what he needs. And so God says, nope, this is going to be the road. It's going to be suffering. It's going to be the cross. But I will send you help. And so an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened Jesus. He didn't rescue him from his suffering, but he strengthened him to endure the suffering. And the suffering is not simply the trial in the next few hours and the cross the next day, the trial is also that one of his friends is betraying him. His other friends are going to ditch him, and now he's wrestling with God, and he's, he's just fighting to say, God, I want to be all in, but I'm struggling to be all in with this. Like, this, this is an interesting dynamic, the relationship between father and son, and God is God and both father and son, and there's all kinds of mystery unfolding in this, but what I love about it is the sense of tension. Verse 44, he prayed more fervently and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. It's not that his sweat turned to blood. It's like, it's a metaphor, like great drops of blood. So he's sweating so much as like these giant, just like puddles are beginning to form where the sweat is coming off of his body because it's so intense. He's in agony, it says. And this idea of agony is the idea of conflict, of struggle. 
right? So again, it's this, this push-pull between desire and submission. And Jesus is just spinning in circles with that. God, I seek this, but you're going to do that. And I want to be faithful, but this is really hard. And I know what I'm going to face, but I know what you're going to do. And like, I love this. I had one of these prayers two nights ago, three in the morning. Woke up in a total, like, just panicky mode. And I was just praying through all kinds of different things. And it was just that, like, swirling tempest of different feelings and different strife and struggle and agony and friction and frustration and faith and trust and fear and doubt all mixed together. Right? That's sort of the space that Jesus is in, right? I love that because in Hebrews it says Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was born as flesh and blood just like we are. He faced temptation just as we do. He did not sin, but he understands why we do, and therefore we can come with boldness to his throne and find grace and mercy when we need it. I believe much of that is because of this scene on this night right here. So he battles, he frets, he anguishes, he pleads, and then finally he resolves. Verse 43. At last he stood up again, and he turned to the disciples to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Luke is the only one that cuts the disciples a lot more slack. The other guys are a lot tougher on the guys. But here the idea is, you ever been so depressed you just want to pull the covers over your head and sleep away? You just want to hide because you're so discouraged? Well, that's where these guys are at. He says, but why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you, so you won't enter into temptation. The other gospel writers say this happened three times. Luke kind of just expedites everything. He doesn't drag it out. And so what we have is Jesus is drenched with sweat. He's been praying hard, finally stands to his feet, summons the sleepers, and he says, let's go. The difference is that Jesus is ready for what's next, and they are not. He's prayed it up, so he's resolved and he's ready. They have slept away, and so they are not resolved, not ready, but will succumb to fear and failure. Verse 47. Be it even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, to understand the scene, the crowd is not the crowd that have been enjoying the teaching or whatever else. This is authorities. So this is the temple guards. This is the religious leaders. This is a civic, empowered entity that's coming. And then they're being led by Judas. And Judas comes with the most violent act ever, cloaked in the most loving and loyal symbol. Betrayal with a kiss. It's so Godfather-like, right? Jesus, my friend, come here, give me a kiss, right? It's just like the worst of the worst. And while it looks to be caring, authentic, peace-filled, there is tension in the air. Verse 49, when the other disciples saw that was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords times two, right? 12 dudes, two swords, zero training. Uh, you're a fisherman, 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 tax collector. You've never used a sword. We have one that used to be a zealot, a terrorist. That guy might be able to kill somebody right now. Give him one of the swords, right? Against what? Uh, against armed, trained security people from the temple. And not just like two or five or seven. Matthew's gospel says poly in Greek. Many, pluralized, a large group 
of authorities have come to deal with this. So this showdown is completely offsides, right? Like uh, nobody is sided up, sided up in this in a way that would really bring any kind of victory to the disciples, right? But there's a bigger issue in play right here, and it's going to lead to the aha moment, the lesson to be taught. Because again, what are they thinking? All right, it's like 50 or 100 versus 12, because Judas is on the other side now, so it's Jesus and the 11 versus this big group. But they're thinking, okay, he's got a sword, he's got a sword, but we've got Jesus on our team. And he's Messiah, and we know what Messiah's gonna do. He's gonna go full on Sonic the Hedgehog, just roll about, kill you all, right? Swords are spinning, because that's what Messiah does. Why else would he ask us to cowboy up like he did just a little while ago and strap on? We know the fight's coming. We're tired of sitting around. We're tired of waiting. waiting. We're ready to fight. Talk is over. Action has come. We're going to use the tip of the sword to bring in the kingdom of Jesus right here, right now, again with our two swords. We're going to do like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. We're just going to be really quick because we're going to be supernaturally empowered to take these guys down, right? So they ask, should we fight what I think is interesting is that somebody in the crowd is trigger happy. They don't wait for authorization. They just go hot, right? They're just like, no, nope, we're going to go. Open up a can of whoop wrath right now. I'm going to fight. So, says one of them, and we find out from John that it was Peter, which I love. John's like, I'm just going to rat him out finally. Nobody else wrote about it. I'm going to say who did it. Peter struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. I, I read this story, and it makes me laugh every time, right? Because it's like, okay, there's a dude with a sword. There's a dude with a club. Uh, here's the high priest guy. And then here's just a servant holding his hat or whatever. Like, like, this guy's just minding his own business, and that's who Pete goes after, right? And I'm sure, like, months later, they're all, like, riding around in a chariot, and they're like, Pete, dude, remember when you did the whole sword thing? Where, what, what did you get? God is here. Oh, is here. Oh, there he is, man. Go for a big toe next time. You know, like, I'm sure you could get plenty mock for his strike here, all right? But with this swing of the sword, Peter's Game of Thrones moment here, right? It fulfills that earlier prophecy that Jesus would be numbered as what? A traitor, right? He would be numbered as a rebel, and Peter is the first act of violence in this rebellion. Peter's still on an old page of an old version of Messiah with an old concept of kingdom. And it's all going to come crashing down what it's really all about. Peter's resisting arrest. These are legal authorities that can arrest these guys. And Peter says, no, I'm not going to submit to authority. I'm not going to submit to these religious leaders and these police officers that they brought with them. And so he picks the fight. He's resisting arrest. He is a terrorist at that point. And in his swipe, in that sword moment, the prophecy is fulfilled of how Jesus is numbered among the rebels. But equally, the lesson is taught. And what is the lesson? Verse 51. But Jesus said, no more of this. Or... When we look at the Greek, that's enough. Remember earlier? Buy swords. We got two. That's enough. Now swords are swinging. Stop. That's enough. They're conjoined. They're connected for a reason. In Matthew, we see that he says, put away your sword. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. 
These guys have been waiting for the day that Jesus was finally going to unload, unleash with untamed wrath. And now he says, no, that's not the way. Both times he says, that's enough or no more of this. It's terse. It's bitey. It's to the point. And Jesus is driving the point home. My kingdom, my kingdom is not the sword. My kingdom is the cross. My kingdom is not that we will get everybody else to bow as we are the persecutors, but rather we will kneel as the persecuted. And when persecuted, what did Jesus say? We'll do it with joy. We'll leap for joy, he says in the Sermon on the Plain. He says, yes, there are enemies. Don't you remember when I taught you about our enemies? We do good to them. We love them. We pray for them. We turn the other cheek to them. We go the extra mile with them. Remember what I told you about our enemies, Peter. We don't use the sword. We use the gospel. We use the cross. It's blood shed to rescue sins, not shedding blood to deal with sinners. It's so radically different, upside down and backwards. I mean, this is one of the most profound lessons. Why do you think that every one of those guys after this night are so changed that every one of them died, minus John, basically at the hands of the Roman sword? They didn't say, oh, we're going to keep carrying swords and we're going to take on Rome and we're going to fight our way through this thing. No, they just realized, oh, wait, the way we, we give is we lay ourselves down because that is the way of Jesus. Jesus just confronts them on the spot. You want to live by that item, you will die by that item. But that's not the way I roll. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, man, if I wanted to right now, I could call down legions of angels. We could just wipe these dudes out in a heartbeat. But that's not what the goal is. The goal is to see all the enemies of God reclaimed as sons and daughters, friends, brothers, and sisters. That's why our enemy is not flesh and blood, right? But then Jesus takes it a step further. It says, and he touched the man's ear, and he healed him. Do you, do you see? Peter strikes in anger and violence and defensiveness. And Jesus says, that's not the way we handle our enemies. Let me show you how we handle our enemies. And he reaches down, and he picks up an ear, and he goes over to the high priest's servant, and he, and he mends and he heals him. This is all a lesson. Everything teaches, right? And he's like, Peter, that's the way of the kingdom. That's what I'm doing. That sword will not serve you. But service, that will serve the world, right? Making ourselves the least will change the world. You look at where the gospel has most blown up and made radical impacts. It, it, it's where the church says, you know what? We're gonna just be the servants of the world. If they mistreat us, we'll still be the servants of the world. The old statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's always been this way. We're in that posture that, man, that's where revivals break out. When we become strength-minded and money-minded and power-minded, that's where we lose all supernatural influence. Jesus does this through the cross itself, right? He surrenders to his enemies to rescue his enemies. It's profound. And so after healing the man, Jesus spoke to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. And he said, am I really a dangerous revolutionary? I know Peter is not helping my cause right now. He says, but you think that I am, that you've come out with me swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day, but it is in this moment, this time in the power of darkness that reigns that now you are taking your actions here. So I love this. 
Because just because Jesus is embodying love in the face of hate, he doesn't try to say that this isn't hate. He's calling it out, right? He's like, am I really a dangerous revolutionary? Every day I was pretty chill. I never stirred up trouble. When my man here pulled a sword, I immediately told him to put it back, and I healed your servant in the midst of that. So I'm healing my enemies. I've always been calm. You guys have clearly misarticulated this. I'm not what you make me out to be. But at the same time, what Jesus knows in this whole setting is that they're not really operating from justice. Right? What are they operating from? From darkness, parading as righteousness. And, And that can happen in religion too often. It can be darkness pretending to be righteousness. And it's missing true justice. So with that, verse 54, they arrested him and they led him to the high priest's home and Peter followed at a distance. Peter was incredibly bold and courageous that night as he pulls his sword, but as soon as he realizes the kind of Jesus he's following, he flees and he runs and he hides. He's being sifted like wheat. And so the disciples all split like cops pulling up to a teen kager, right? They're just all directions. And Jesus willingly surrenders to the authorities. And now the path is set for the salvation of the world through the sacrificial suffering Son of God. That is why this gospel is scandalous. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, many lessons today. Many lessons. I pray that we will long for living out your lessons that we will realize that the way the gospel is seen with power is not only that your people share it, proclaim it, preach it, but we embody it, we live it, we do it. That we show your disposition. We show that you have conquered death and therefore we do not fear death. We do not worry about our persecutors because it's an opportunity for joy if it happens. That we will believe that servanthood is the way to revival that trust in you more than trust in ourselves is the way for a better future in your kingdom where you are glorified as supreme and we enjoy the ride you take us on. Help us to be more like you and to think like you, to react and respond like you in this world. In your name, amen.